Merry Christmas. Thank you. I uh, hope you'll excuse some of my um, hopefully not too frequent water drinks. I, like 9 out of 10 of you, am recovering from a cold. So I hope the voice holds up. I'm really excited today because today I'm taking three things I really love and kind of seeing the convergence of these three things. Christmas, I love Christmas. It's Whoville, November 1st at the McMahon House in Centerville. Um, it's a holiday season, not a holiday. And uh, I love the Holy Scriptures. I love their stories. And I love J.R.R. Tolkien's World of Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings. You do too. Christmas to me means Lord of the Rings. I, every every uh, November, December, I rewatch the movies. I reread the books where I left off last Christmas. I listen to the soundtrack on repeat in my office. And I even read commentaries about the books if the rest wasn't nerdy enough. Um, so I'm putting those three things together to deepen our devotion. A good devotional deepens your devotion to the object. So that's what we're doing today. Let me pray towards that, and we'll get going. Jesus, um, you're our object. Settle our minds and open our hearts, calm our bodies, to hear this good news about you. Amen. So Mary had quite the perspective. She had joy amidst great responsibility, and I know some of you think that parenting a junior high school varsity athlete is great responsibility, one in which you have not great joy in doing. And it is a, and it is a big responsibility, but just um, as we're setting this up, try imagine parenting the second person of the triune God himself, and then you're really on to a kind of responsible act. But Mary has joy. How does she do this? That's the question we're asking today. And the answer, I'll give it to you, is she adores him. Joyful and triumphant, she adores him. Of great joy comes out of one of the angel's greatest hits, as it were, Luke 2, which we've looked at in this series. Good news is what our word gospel means. You know this. Gospel comes from, um, well, here's, here's a fun fact. Um, you can't leave church today and say you didn't learn anything. Um, gospel comes from uh, the Middle Ages, and you throw in a little uh, Scandinavian Germanic pagan influence, and you have this word God spell. God spell means good story, hence good news. Because a good story, it kind of puts you under a spell, doesn't it? Puts you under a kind of divine trance. You enter a world and its peoples and their struggles, and you escape for a little while. The gospel is a purely good story I'm going to show you. It is the truly good story because the gospel, it is a God spell. It captures your mind and ravishes your heart. When addressed from the proper perspective, like with Mary, it puts you under a deeply divine spell. So, gospel, got that? Good story. God spell. Stories, they're the containers, they're so important. They're the containers of all things special and sacred in life. All the aesthetics and virtues that mean something. Um, beauty, meaning, love, sacrifice, forgiveness, great joy. They come through stories. And as you know, there are two broad categories of stories that we all see when we enter Barnes & Noble, right? Historical and fiction. Fact and fantasy. Fact or myth. Now, facts contain finality. 
Follow with me here. Facts contain finality. JFK's assassination happened in history, 11-22-63. But facts don't mean anything with, within and of themselves. This is why we create conspiracy theories, because evil, murder, is fundamentally irrational, so we build a story around it to give it some kind of meaning, give it some kind of sense. Myths contain meaning. A fact can tell you what a thing is, what a thing does. It's scientific. But science has no place with value. Myth can tell you what a thing means. Myths, they're somehow, they're implicitly consequential for your life. They mean something to you. Now you need both for a truly good story, a consequential story, the best stories. And the best story is, of course, the story of a dying God who became man and gave himself up for man, that he would resurrect and defeat death for man. We can call this a fact myth. I made that up. The gospel is a fact myth because it means something, or it is something in history, and it means something for your life. It's implicitly consequential. Look at what C.S. Lewis said towards this idea in God of the Dock. Now, as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which also became fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from nobodies, and nobody knows when, nobody knows where, mythology, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That's the miracle. Listen to this. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from the myths they did not believe than the religions they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace we accord to all myths, one is hardly more necessary than the other. So facts contain finality, yes? Myths contain meaning. You need both to truly understand the story, the good story of great joy. Because this fact myth that Lewis is speaking towards, that I'm speaking towards, it transcends the normativity and the tragedy of your life. Do you want that? Do you want that? It transcends us in our struggle against darkness. This is proven with Lewis, with Tolkien. Uh, take a more modern myth writer, J.K. Rowling. Consider friendship with J.K. Rowling. You can tell someone what a friend, which friendship is and that it's worthwhile. But it's no use, is it, to just tell them what it is and how to do it. Until you look at a story like Ron and Hermione's devotedness to Harry and his struggle against Voldemort and his snare on the wizarding world, then you know what friendship is. Its meaning has to be shown to the degree in which you feel something. You experience the story. You enter into its spell. See, you come under a trance. You always feel something at the conclusion of great myths and legends because something in you feels that, well, yes, that's true. One reads Rowling's myths of Harry Potter, and she says, you say that, well, yeah, that's, that's what real friendship's like. Yeah, that's what real friends do. Inevitably, though, 
right? We all become children again at the conclusion of the story, at the closing of the book, and we ask, but is it true? Did it actually happen in history? Because the greatest story ever told would not simply be a story of the triumph of good over evil. We have so many of those. Every new Marvel movie, we have one of those. The best story would be a true story of the triumph of good over evil. How joyous might that be? Would that not be good news of great joy? So, virgin birth, incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, fact or fantasy, your choice, history or myth, how should we see, as Mark and Peter would have at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God? Here's my assertion. If it is the greatest story, then fact and fantasy it is, history and myth it is, because, and there are bodies in this room to testify, it's not just the greatest story ever told, it's the greatest story ever lived, isn't it? So, let's regain our footing. Let me get rid of my cold. The gospel is a God spell. And Bill's phone's ringing again. It's all right, I have young kids, I can speak over it. The gospel is a God spell because it, mean, it, it is something in history. Well, the gospel, it captures your mind and heart, it's a God spell. It's, and it's a fact myth because it is something and it means something. Now, with this story, we're going to begin, as all good stories would have it, from the end. And most people don't realize that... Um, you, know, you can't teach something until you've really been taught it. And I was reminded in, in studying this this week, uh, the, God, the Christmas story ends really ominously. It ends quite grim. While Jesus was still an infant, Joseph and Mary, they take him to Jerusalem to have a baby dedication of sorts in accordance with the Torah law uh, at the temple. And this is a jubilant, exciting thing. This is a celebration. And lingering around the temple is uh, a prophet, as I imagine prophets tend to do. They kind of linger and slink around, you know kind of creepy. He's a real mystic type. He's a man who saw forth all the light of the Lord shone, both forwards and backwards. But amidst the wonderful and ornate tradition of it all, the prophet, Simeon is his name, he kind of grabs Mary by the arm and he, and he says, listen carefully, this child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and a sign that will be rejected. Indeed, as the result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What's the last line? And a sword will pierce your heart as well, will pierce your soul as well. Luke 2, 34, 35. Perhaps the sudden weight of these words froze Mary in a kind of glazed-over stare, wondering what they might mean, hoping against all horror, and coming back to her senses, seeing that the prophet had disappeared, as I imagine prophets tend to do. They just kind of come and go. Are you looking for Jesus today? If you're looking for Jesus today, look for the sign of a body wrapped in linen cloth, lying in a cave where no one else has laid. Now the story we have of this, as I said, is from Luke 2. And so we're going to finish the story. We've been working through it slowly through this month. We're going to finish it just now. Feel the story in your body. Don't moralize it. Just take it in and listen. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to deliver a child. 
She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now there were shepherds nearby living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared around them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said, don't, 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 be, don't be afraid. Listen carefully. I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today your Savior is born, the city of David. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among people with whom he's pleased. And the angels left them, and they went back to heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, Boy, we gotta get out of, we got to go to Bethlehem, and we got to see this thing that's taken place that the Lord has shown to us. So they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph, and they found a body, a baby, lying in a cave, a manger. And when they saw him, parenthetical statement, huge one, they related what they, had been see, what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds said. But Mary treasured up all these words, pondering in her heart what they might mean. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard, all they had seen. Everything was just as they had said. Did you see the verse about Mary? Verse 19. But Mary pondered up all these words. Treasured up all these words, pondering what they might mean. Mary does three things. This is how she has joy. She does three things concerning the sign, the good news of great joy. She has knowledge of what is happening around her. She accepts the mystery, the myth of it all, of what it might mean, and she worships. She adores Jesus. Mary beheld Jesus to her full capacity and like no other. Her example of adoration, it's the purest form of human relation to God. This is in fact the fundamental idea of the Catholic emphasis of the Virgin Mary that one should, and more importantly, can relate to God in the same reverent and intimate manner in which Mary does. But to do that, you need knowledge, you need mystery. You have to know the object you're worshiping. But there's gotta be enough mystery to it. You're finite, he's infinite. There has to be enough mystery to it that overwhelms you, that stirs your heart into wonder. What could it mean? What's the implicit consequence of this having happened in history? True worship makes you marvel. It stirs your mind into curiosity and it ravishes your heart. So plainly, you need fact and fantasy. You need a historical approach and a mythical approach. See how this is working together? It's, it's brilliant. To ascend to the God's spell, out of the trance, you need a fact myth. See how this is working? So Mary has knowledge. Three really cool things about Mary's knowledge. Um, there's, there's two verbs, verbs in 219, but Mary treasured up all these words. This, there's, there's a verb there, it's suntereo. It's a, Luke uses it in a uh, agricultural context in other ways. So Mary is like, it, the image you have is she's, she's making a storehouse. She's, she's holding, she's not just, these things aren't just passing by her. She's gathering up these things, storing them together. That's the first thing you need to see. Her inquisitive personality Three times Luke characterizes Mary's personality, 129, 219, and 251. All three times, this tells you a lot about Mary, all three times she's asking questions. She's poking and prodding. She wants to know more. She's inquisitive. The third thing about Mary's knowledge is her Bible knowledge. Mary knew her Bible. 
the uh, famous Magnificat in 146-55, uh, Mary sings this song of joy and exposition of Yahweh's faithfulness to the covenant to save his people. It's 10 verses long. Get this. 10 verses Mary shares, by my count of the Greek New Testament, over 50 verses of scripture that she references, alludes to, or directly quotes. I've been up here like an idiot for 15 minutes, and I've referenced one passage of scripture. This is for you to know that you'd be better off with Mary preaching to you today than me. And Mary didn't even go to seminary. But it's not just her knowledge alone why you'd be better off with Mary preaching to you today. And Mary reveled in the mystery, the myth of it all. She was inquisitive, but she had imagination. Knowledge alone is like a museum. You go into it, you look at it, but you don't interact with it. It's static. It stays there. The mystery, the myth, is like a lighthouse. It prefigures. It looks for what's to come. It's not something of a retelling in the past. It's a prefiguration of the past, the present, and the future altogether. So Mary's mystery. You have to see Mary's mystery. The second verb, pondering up what they might mean. Sumbalusa is the term. It's, it's, it's conflicting. The root of this, this, this verb. It's, it's engaging in something. It's, it's conflict. It's, it's comparison. It's wrestling. What does it mean, she's asking. Pondering what they might mean. Now that I know, now that I have fact, what does it mean? What makes me marvel? What makes me weep? What makes me rejoice? And so we have this story the sign that is given. You know the sign. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a body wrapped in linen cloth, lying in a cave where no one had laid. It's kind of hauntingly witnessed in the parenthetical statement. Verse 16 and 17, the shepherds, they found the baby in the cave. When they saw him, something happened. And then it's sorrowfully understood by Mary in verse 19. Here's why. Mary, ever inquisitive, in the midst of the trauma of birth, exuberance and marvel of it all, begins to see the pieces fitting together. She realizes Isaiah 7's virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us, the 490 years of 2 Chronicles 36 and Daniel 9, Isaiah's 9, Isaiah 9's Prince of Peace, she's, she's realizing it's all happening. It's actually happening, it's me. It's him. And, oh, and, and, and the shepherds, that's Jeremiah 3. The shepherds would proclaim the sign of the Lord. And the magi, the mystics from the east, well, that's Numbers 24, Micah 5. It's really happening. The Lord is promising to do. The Lord is doing what he promised to do. But the maternal moments, they begin to fade into mortality utter mortality, Mary, Mary notices something strange. The Magi, in reverence, they, they present three gifts, but not to her, not to Joseph. They present three gifts to the baby, to the baby's body. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. She wants to say thanks, but this strikes her as odd. Why, though, she wonders. Surely, she thinks, if the Magi were wise enough to read the scriptures and follow the stars, they know the sensibilities of Jewish birthing. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, after all, are altar preparations, not. And it comes to her slowly at first, and in a rush at once and altogether heavy. Exodus 30, 
and her stomach begins to thicken in knots. Exodus 30 is the Lord's instructions given to Moses for the sin-atoning sacrifice of the people. The law instructs that gold will adorn the altar, frankincense to burn over the fragrance of the blood, and myrrh to purify the body and the carcass. Just then, the last piece of the puzzle falls into place. Another passage from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, prophecy of the Lord's suffering servant, whose body will be marred and pierced and crushed and scourged and hated and led like a lamb to the slaughterhouse, a body whose grave was assigned before birth. The world would be such a cruel place to this body, and all she can now see is the blood. So much blood, her olive skin turns gray. This is not a celebration of life. This is the preparation of a death. She has a vision. It's vague, through the haze of the shock of it all, but understandable enough. This body that she holds, wrapped in linen cloth, lying in a cave where no one has laid, was destined to be wrapped in bloody linen cloth, lying in a cave tomb where no one had been laid. Luke 2, 12, this is the sign for you. You'll find a body wrapped in linen cloth, lying in a cave where no one has laid. Luke 23, 53, taking down the body of Jesus from the cross, he wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock where no one had yet been laid. This is not a celebration of life. It's a preparation of a death. The Christmas story, the mass of Christ, it's not a retelling of history. It's not a mythological retelling of legend. It is a prefiguration of what was, what is, what will be. It offers to you a nostalgia for eternity. There's got to be something more. If you're searching for Jesus today, do you see the sign? It's the sign of his body, wrapped in linen cloth, lying in a cave where no one else, no one else, no one else has ever laid. A catastrophe. J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogies, in his most famous essay, he offers a word that he made up. This essay is called On Fairy Stories. And the word is eucatastrophe. It's a sudden turn of, of, of joy or humor. I was with Bill's phone. <laughs> this word that Tolkien made up has actually become an official entry in the Oxford Dictionary. And you might notice that it's two words put together. Catastrophe is easily identifiable enough. But Eucharist is the other word that he put in there. It's a Christian theological term, Eucharist. And it's uh, the more serious term for what we call communion the blessed sacrament of the body and blood of Jesus. The Eucharist comes from a Greek root, denoting lots of ideas, but basically it's a joyful gratitude, joy characterizing gratitude, a joyful celebration, as in rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, as the song says. Tolkien says that all fairy stories, that is myth and fantasy, have the consolation of the happy ending. That is the eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophe is an aspect of an imaginative satisfaction of ancient desires. It's the highest form of fairy tale, where tragedy is the true form of drama. The eucatastrophe is the opposite. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, the joy of the catastrophe, it is the sudden joyous turn, the joy of deliverance. Insofar, it is evangelium, gospel, good story. 
giving fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world. It is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible its adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes a catch of a breath. The peculiar quality of the joy in successful fantasy is explained by the sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. It is not only consolation for the sorrow of this world, but a satisfaction to the answer that you're all asking, but is it true? Did it actually happen in history? In the catastrophe, we see a brief vision that the answer may be greater. It may be a far-off gleam or echo of an evangelium, a good news, good story in the real world. But this story has entered history. The birth of the Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale that has ever been told that man would rather find true. None which so many skeptical men have accepted as true based on its own merits. To reject this story leads to sadness. And so this joy, the joy of which the turn in the fairy story gives, such joy has the very taste of primary truth, otherwise its name would not be joy. It looks forward and backwards to the great eucatastrophe, preeminently high and joyous, because this gospel story is supreme, and it is true. Art has been verified. God is Lord of angels and of men and of elves and of hobbits. Legend and history have met. Myth has become fact. And so some 30 years after the Christmas story, we come to the Easter story. Dear friends of the Lord, John, Peter, and Mary, come to a cave. John 20, 5 through 7. John bent down and saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived and went right into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen cloth lying there. The face of the cloth, which has been around Jesus' head, lying with the strips of linen cloth, but rolled up. By itself, the cave was empty. A eucatastrophe. If you're looking for Jesus today, look for the pre-configured sign. That is the death that leads to life. It's a good story. Oh, great joy. And so the last thing Mary does, because she saw all this, she worships. It is the distinct and complete worship of Mary that she beheld the sign that is the object of devotion, that is Jesus Christ, Son of God, light of the world, resurrected in the body, mystery revealed, known to man, the power of salvation. This is the gospel that's offered to you at Christmas. So as Samwise would say, Frodo, it's like in the great stories, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be so happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when things are so bad? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass, and a new day will come when the sun will shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that meant something. Those are the stories that stayed with you. Those are the stories that mattered, 
even if you're a child and you're too small to understand why. So we're, we're going to worship like Mary. I invite you to take of the Eucharist at the front two corners or in the middle at the aisle and the back two corners. Take them back to your seat and we'll take of the body and blood together. As we sing with angels, joyful and triumphant, and adore him. Deal? Well, uh, we hope this has been instructive for you and um, deepened your devotion uh, towards joy in this Christmas season. This, as uh, was said, this is our family gathering, a little bit more intimate, a little bit more deep. Next weekend, Friday and Saturday, we'll see you again. And uh, bring a friend, because it's going to be a little bit more you know, inclusive and, and all of that. Not so much blood <laughs> this Christmas. But when you see the red and white on your stockings, you'll know that you have life because of bloody linens. Merry Christmas. Have a good day.